Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. Do you recall the feeling you had while playing hide and seek where the seeker walked right past you? That buzz, that high, that peace mixed with heightened awareness that can only be brought on by tapping into our base instincts, our so-called caveman DNA. It's amazing, a good feeling to get a dose of that. Have you ever thought about killing someone? Hiding, hunting, releasing yourself from all these rules, all these morals, all these games. Becoming a thing, a force, a real nuisance, a problem. Have you ever just put yourself there? Into what it is, what it must be like? I've tried it. Go ahead if you like, think about a type, a type of person you can't stand. Think about the first one. How you'd get them alone, what you'd say, how you'd do it, how you'd dispose of them, how you'd escape the whole thing. We are predators, and it honestly feels strangely liberating to initiate that sequence by allowing the mindset to set up. They are out there, budding serials, journeymen, sadists, not the sadists that you call up with the friggin' leather on and tie you up, give you safe words. Violent, creepy-type sadists, collectors of pain and suffering. There are men plotting the rape and disposal of women. Women daydreaming the annihilation of their children. Children staring off into space, feeling empty, in line in queue to be jettisoned onto a path of bloody fulfillment once they find the key. Through a dog's whimper of pain, a cat's mule of misery, the death throes of a fish left a gasp for water on shore before having its eyes gouged out with a stick. Current and coming are the killers among us. It's only a matter of time before we become aware of them, or at the very least, their work. I have a very strong feeling that many of the monsters among us are not simply wired differently or sick, psychotic, deranged, not just anomalies, freaks of nature, their inner workings laid out in textbooks, Secrets sold for a hundred bucks in a community college abnormal psychology class. I have a feeling that maybe, probably, it's always within reach. We don't have a handle on this thing. It's too fluid, too available. It's on tap for each of us. We can all experience what it's like to 
let go, to give in to our deepest, darkest nature. We just choose not to. We fill our lives with light instead, or alcohol, drugs, and apathy. It's better that way. It really is. But that's not to say that to go completely dark doesn't hold fulfillment of its own, to become a lizard on a warm rock, belly full of baby guts, alone, reviled, completely off the chain. What's it like? Are we all edging with these books, these podcasts, these true crime docs? Are we all window shopping, smelling not tasting? Are we voyeurs of violence, feeding some haunted well within by drip, drip, dripping the essence of manifested evil into it via media, via consumption of dark topics? If so, what would you become then? If from the start your mother told you, your father showed you that it's okay to be as bad as you want to be, that terrible thoughts need not be tamped down, but nurtured, explored. For some, it isn't a question of nature versus nurture. It's not an overwhelming urge, a completely foreign dark energy that compels them to kill, that they fight, that they grapple with. It is simply a choice. When 10-year-old Katie Marie Curran was kidnapped from her South Boston neighborhood on April 18, 1874, it was barely mentioned in the local paper. Beyond a notice of a $500 reward for the capture of whoever stole her, Katie's disappearance received no further publicity, at least not in print, until 10 days later when the butchered body of another child was found in a circle of stones meant for a clam bake on the banks of the Boston Harbor. A little boy named Horace Millen had been missing just hours, not even long enough for his mother's summoning call to curdle, when a deaf-mute 14-year-old stumbled across the child's broken body and rushed for help. The moaning, wild-eyed teen found an officer on foot patrol and spastically drew his hand across his throat, indicating what he'd seen, then motioned for the cop to follow. In a marsh within earshot of Mrs. Millen's now desperate song, the officer found her missing four-year-old's nude body, partially hidden beneath a stump of driftwood. His throat was, quote, cut from ear to ear. An ugly stab completely put out the left eye. A circle of 18 stab wounds littered Horace's chest. His genitals had been mutilated. The injuries reminded the beat cop of a case two years earlier. A 12-year-old South Boston boy had coaxed little kids to the waterfront, tied them to trees or telephone poles, stripped their clothes, and whipped the wailing children, cutting deep gashes into their bodies and faces. The ten victims, between the ages of five and eight, identified 12-year-old Jesse Pomeroy as the culprit. Though Pomeroy had been sentenced to nine years in reform school, he'd spent just two years there, and was released to his mother, six months before little Horace Millens' murder. The four-year-old victim's injuries were so similar to the earlier cases that, on little more than a hunch, police went to the Pomeroy home about 10 p.m. and pulled the now 14-year-old convicted child torturer from his bed. Not only did the blooming psychopathic killer confess to the slaying of Horace, but three months later, after the Pomeroy family moved from the neighborhood, workers found a skeleton with the clothing of a little girl still clinging to it, 
in an ash pile in the cellar of their old place. Eventually, young Jesse Pomeroy confessed to killing Katie Marie Curran, the little girl mentioned in the beginning. Two. The nation's first, at least widely publicized, child serial killer fully looked the part. His skin was sallow, his manner eerily calm, his left eye sunken dead and white after a fishing hook caught it when his brother was casting a lure. Newspaper articles claimed one need only look at Jesse Pomeroy to see the wickedness at his core. He was, psychiatrists said, a moral imbecile, one incapable of controlling his dark urges, born mentally deficient by an unlucky draw from the gene pool. The only thing to do, everyone agreed, was put him away forever. Though Pomeroy was sentenced to death, after two years of nationwide debate, the governor commuted his sentence to life imprisonment, and life he did serve. The killer known as the Boston Boy Fiend died an old man in 1932 at the age of 70, having spent 40 of his 56 years served behind bars in solitary confinement where he attempted to escape no less than a dozen times. The diagnosis of moral imbecility that was prevalent in the late 1800s was an interesting one, a precursor to the nature versus nurture debate. Were killers born or were they made? By circumstance. Child killers in those days were often labeled as moral imbeciles when there was no hint in their upbringings to explain why they killed. In Pomeroy's case, his mother told the court that when she was pregnant with him, she'd often accompany her butcher husband to the slaughterhouse and delight in watching him work. Work that surely entailed plenty of violence, guts, and gore. This must explain his unnatural proclivities, Mum Pomeroy opined. By osmosis, she deduced, the violent death and the stench of the slaughterhouse must have permeated her womb, poisoning her otherwise untarnished seed. Jesse Pomeroy was an aberration for certain. The brutality he meted out was not the usual behavior of a child. But he was not, unfortunately, one of a kind. In the sesquicentennial that passed since Pomeroy's grisly juggernaut, plenty of child killers have walked his same shockingly sadistic path. Sometimes they work in pairs, their darkness only realized by the rot from each brewing into a loathsome stew. Sometimes they are the consequence of abuse. Children tortured by a drunken parent, a deviant friend, or an insidious stranger. And sometimes, in spite of normal outward appearance, because they don't always look like the monsters they prove to be. They are indeed just from bad stock. The sequel of a sour gene cesspool from which even a Venus flytrap can adorably blossom, then grow into a bloodthirsty carnivore. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 019, The Moral Imbecile. Thirty-one-year-old Harvey Rodriguez Robinson, a.k.a. Harvey Ray, was a father of three with a pregnant wife at home. And, as you'll soon learn, he was a real piece of shit. In 1962, while the missus was home caring for their babies in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, Harvey Ray was playing the drums in a local jazz band, 90 minutes away in York screwing the pathetic groupies that fell under the spell of small-time wannabe superstars and their sticks. 
He'd often tell his old lady he'd be gone for a week booking gigs, then spend the time partying with chicks, before crashing at the home of one of his most reliable side pieces, Marlene Perez. Marlene, 27, had spent five years or so working for the city in various capacities. After her divorce from a York police officer, she found freedom in the bar scene. It was there that she laid eyes upon the deadbeat drummer. Harvey Ray had an open invitation to her place. Anytime he was in town, he'd crash at her Maple Street apartment, not on the couch, but in her bed, though Harvey Ray would later deny a romantic entanglement. The duo had befriended a 24-year-old named Ricky Miller, who lived in a neighboring unit with his mother. On the eve of Christmas Eve, the tail end of the year that brought us classics like Monster Mash and Elvis Presley's Return to Sender, a 14-year-old girl was hanging out in front of Marlene's apartment when Harvey Ray arrived like a whirlwind and swept her up into the party. The foursome drank a lot, a gut-busting combination of beers chased by wine in Harvey Ray's case. As he swilled the booze, his mood became darker. It can be assumed he wasn't thrilled with Ricky's presence and that maybe the young girl he brought up wasn't hot to trot. Fortunately, the 14-year-old left unscathed, and Harvey stumbled out soon after, following a jealousy-fueled spat with Marlene. But then, later, as self-important dirtbags always do, Harvey Ray came back. When he entered the quiet apartment, he made his way to the bedroom where he found Marlene in bed with Ricky Miller. Harvey Ray reacted, as you might expect, and began beating the hell out of Marlene as Ricky stumbled into his jeans and quickly left without intervening. The following morning, Ricky's mother heard a knock at the door. It was Harvey Ray, all aflutter, with an announcement for little Ricky. Quote, Hey, I think we're in trouble. I think Marlene's dead. I think I killed her. The dynamic duo went back to the apartment where Marlene lay naked, bloodied, and dead on the couch. Once he found his voice, Ricky interrupted the jabbering Harvey Ray and said they'd have to call the police. No, he would not agree to cover for Harvey by letting him leave now and report he'd found her himself. When the cops arrived, they were surprised to have the natural prime suspects on scene. An autopsy would later determine Marlene's brainstem was severed, and they found an apartment in tatters. Three rooms showed signs of a struggle, suggesting whoever beat her to death had chased her through the place to do it. Ricky and Harvey denied knowing what had happened, but under intense questioning, Ricky cracked, admitting he'd witnessed part of the assault, said he saw the jazz drummer play a tune on Marlene's skull with his fists and boots. Harvey Ray eventually confessed too, but man, he didn't hit her that hard, he said. He only shoved her when she got mad because, being the good father and husband that he was, he had called his wife to tell her where to find money for Christmas presents when Marlene, that Jezebel, had the nerve to curse his bride while he was on the phone. He didn't kill her. Sure, it seemed unlikely that two people would beat the hell out of Marlene in the same night, but it was a pretty rough neighborhood. Harvey Ray was charged with first-degree murder. A generous jury full of half-wits found him guilty of manslaughter. The sentence? Six to twelve years in prison. Mrs. Harvey Ray dumped her absent husband immediately, probably relieved to have a clear cause for escape from the low life. He completed the max of his sentence, a dozen years, 
and once free, the killer quickly found a naive enough woman to serve as home base and got back to what he was best at, smacking skins. The drumming deviant spent enough time at home, however, to create with his fresh bride a little frizzy-haired boy who would be namesake and with time become a worthy successor to his free-spirited and, well, spirit-freeing father. Harvey Miguel Robinson was born December 6, 1974, in the fabled Allentown, Pennsylvania of Billy Joel fame. Miggy, as he came to be known, was a chip off the old block. He idolized his father, so when his folks split up, because Harvey Ray was still an asshole, still an abuser, and an unrepentant drunk, it was hard on the green-eyed tot. He wanted to be just like his pop. All that booze cut up with the old man in 1989. Cirrhosis of the liver is an ugly disease, particularly for a drinker. Your feet swell, you vomit, shit blood, your skin goes yellow, your outlook becomes bleak, but that's nothing another beer can't fix, and... By fix, I mean act as a nail to be pounded in your coffin. At 14, Miggy's hero was gone. What's a boy to do? Well, he threw himself into sports. That's what he did. Miggy wrestled, played baseball and football for the die-rough high school Huskies. Got fairly decent grades, had a large group of friends who'd hang out on the porch of his mother's tidy Cape Cod-style home, and was respected among his peers. Not so much, though, among teachers and law enforcement in the area. When Miggy was 14, he took a swing at a social services worker, then wrestled him to the ground, ending up in juvenile detention. Other outbursts resulted in Miggy being assigned to classrooms for emotionally disturbed kids. At 16, he and two buddies were arrested for burglarizing a home, and Miggy ended up in juvenile detention again. Then he did some other delinquent shit and ended up in juvie yet again. The woeful story of his father's drinking and violence and the bad example set by his older half-brother who ended up in prison too garnered Mickey some sympathy and leniency from the courts. He was a smart kid. At age six, his IQ tested at 126. That's really bright. When a second IQ test was administered at age 14, the score had dropped to 100. That was still at the top of the average, but was a perplexing loss of intelligence that, more than a decade later, would come into play. Miggy would spend his nights hanging out with friends, going to parties and being lusted after by the girls. One girl in particular would mark down in her journal whenever she hung out with him, though later her notes would act as a sort of timeline. He was strong, too. At just 5'8", Miggy could reportedly bench-press his weight of 185 pounds. Despite being the son of a killer, despite being raised on the wrong side of the tracks, despite having fits of rage with authority... Everyone agreed that the Migster was bright enough to overcome. Miggy's mother was doting, more responsible than the man she'd made a baby with. She was the upper crust of the middle class, and apparently did what she could to raise a well-rounded young man. Nature versus Nurture The first thing Joan Burghardt noticed when she entered her Allentown home on the afternoon of August 5th, 1992, was that her fan was turned off. The stifling Pennsylvania heat was thick in her first floor apartment. Even though she had central air, a fan helped to bust up the humidity. Then Joan noticed the back sliding glass door was wide open. If she thought a power surge had knocked her fan out, she knew it wouldn't have opened the door. Plus, there was no way she'd have left it open while she ran a friend home. 
And Joan noticed the screen door, which she always kept locked even when she'd inadvertently left the pole out of the slider, was slit wide open for a hand to fit in near the handle. Someone had been in her apartment. It only took Joan a few minutes more to figure out why. The $40 in cash she kept in a bank bag on her dresser was missing. Joan called the police and made a report. Maybe she mentioned it to her neighbors. Surely she called the friend she just dropped off to lament the circumstances of her rotten luck. She was only 29. This latest indignation was another in a long line of shit that had gone wrong for the struggling young woman. When she was just 10 years old, a man with a knife had pulled her into an alley and raped her as she walked home from the neighborhood swimming pool. In spite of that brutal assault, Joan blossomed at schools, got good grades, made friends, and seemed to have overcome it all. But the trauma of her childhood assault manifested itself in adulthood. Joan became despondent and suicidal. Eventually, the depression became debilitating, and she was hospitalized for a short time before moving into a group home. After receiving regular therapy and finding a course of medication that tamped down her anxiety and sadness, she'd graduated the program and become one of the first tenants in the newly built Gordon Street Apartments, owned by the state hospital and built as housing for the mentally ill able to live on their own. Four days after the burglary, one of Joan's neighbors called the police. Joan's stereo had been blaring for days. The neighbor said when she'd knock, Joan wouldn't answer. Not only that, but the window screens were out on both the front and back windows. And, the neighbor reported, three nights earlier, just before the loud music started, she'd heard what sounded like screams and someone hitting the walls, like someone was beating up Joan. Through the wide open windows, police could hear what sounded like a television and not a stereo. They hollered inside but got no response. They tried the front door, but it was locked. Then they walked to the back sliding door, found it unlocked, and slipped inside. Immediately, they spotted Joan, face down on the living room floor. The couch, walls, floor, her face, her head, was painted in blood. A plate of cookies she'd been snacking on lie nearby, the milk having dried in the glass over the long days before she was found. A blood-drenched afghan on the back of her love seat revealed she'd been sitting there when the first blow came. An outline of her head could be seen in the fabric. She was wearing a sleep shirt over a pair of jockey shorts, ripped at the crotch, and pulled up to her waist. Beneath her body was the broken necklace she'd worn, a gold crucifix still attached. In her bedroom, they found a dresser drawer open and a pair of black shorts on the floor with blood and dried semen on them. A peach work shirt streaked with blood hung off the closet doorknob. The pattern of the swipes told police the killer used the shirt to wipe off his weapon. In the dining room, they found a calendar. A large X marked out every day leading up to August 7th, the day she was robbed, the day she came come home and found the screen torn, then called her friend to complain. The X's stopped there, never marking the spot for August 8th. At autopsy, it was revealed she'd been raped and bludgeoned to death. There were 37 distinctive injuries to her scalp that fractured her skull and damaged her brain. The force of the blow was so tremendous that hair was embedded in the fractures. Joan also had defensive wounds to both hands, indicating her death wasn't easy. Clumps of her own hair were still clutched in them. She tried to fight off her attacker, and Joan was a big girl, 230 pounds, but 
her efforts were to no avail. All the blood and hair found in her place belonged to her, testing revealed. But she couldn't be responsible for the crusted semen found on the outside of those shorts someone had apparently jacked off into. Four years earlier, the first crime cracked open by DNA evidence took place in England. In the ensuing years, the science had been refined. Lab technicians working this murder were able to extract DNA from the semen left on the shorts, but a database hadn't yet been established to compare it to. And so, as the Burghards buried their troubled child, the trail to her killer went cold. Then, ten months later, and four blocks from Jones' Gordon Street apartment, a woman looked out her window one morning in anticipation of her newspaper, and instead found her stoop empty, the paper girl's cart, left unattended, in the road. Charlotte Schmoyer was 15 years old, an avid swimmer and member of the freshman band at Die Rough High School. She had a paper route for just three and a half weeks and was looking forward to a t-shirt the morning call gave carriers who made it through their probationary period. It was eerily emblazoned with a goal Charlotte would never make. Quote, I survived the first 30 days. On June 9, 1993, Charlotte woke up in her attic bedroom at 5 a.m. and turned off the alarm clock she kept on the wooden bookshelves her father had built for her. She slipped into a blue sweatshirt and sweatpants, stepped into her black canvas tennis shoes, and headed out on this Wednesday morning to handle the $40 a week newspaper route. Charlotte made her way past the Gordon Street Apartments, just a block from her home where Joan Burghardt had been slain, and began passing newspapers through mail slots and tossing them onto porches. It was a half hour later when the woman on Gordon Street looked outside to see if her paper had arrived. The new carrier, a sweet ninth grader named Charlotte, usually delivered it between 5.30 and 6 a.m. People who have their newspapers delivered are a militant type. They expect it when they expect it, and when it isn't there... They immediately take notice. When 6.15 rolled around, there was still no paper on her front porch. The woman glanced into the street in hopes of spotting Charlotte and her newspaper-laden cart. Instead, she saw Charlotte's unattended cart between two cars in the road. The woman called the newspaper office to report the situation. The circulation manager immediately drove to the scene, then to Charlotte's home to try to find the girl. At 7.10 a.m., the supervisor called the police. Hello, my name is Alexis Peters, and I'm a customer service supervisor at the Morning Call. Um, one of our carriers is missing. A half hour later, after Charlotte's mother described in 911 her daughter's height, weight, hair color, after the beat cops made a cursory search of the area, a dispatcher called the detective. Uh, I don't know what this is going to turn into, but this isn't sounding too good. They have no idea what happened to her. Charlotte didn't make it to school either. It was June, as we've said, and this was the first day she'd missed classes for the entire school year. Officers converged on the area. While some began a door-to-door -door search of the neighborhood in the shadow of the state hospital, others walked around the houses directly near the abandoned cart. Between two homes, they found a copy of the day's edition of The Morning Call, and Charlotte's headphones separated from her cassette player. The placement of the items, and in particular the chevron shoe imprint on the Walkman, indicated a struggle took place there. In the dew of a nearby garage window were streaked fingerprints. A crime tech photographed the scene as the hunt in the area continued. Charlotte's teachers were questioned, 
The residents in the neighborhood were questioned. The school bus drivers were questioned. Security officers at the hospital were questioned. But no one saw the 180-pound teen with the curly hair and big brown eyes. Around noon, on a hunch, an investigator suggested teams search a tree-shrouded park less than a mile away. It was not a straight shot, but it was a pretty straightforward shot down several residential streets. A left, a right, then a final left ending at the wooded East Reservoir Park, a stone's throw from a freight rail yard in the Lehigh River. With birds chirping noisily in the trees, the euphony captured on police radio transmission. With the afternoon sun obscured by ever-darkening storm clouds, searchers entered the wood line and spotted blood almost immediately. Like with crumbs from Hansel and Gretel, they followed the trail of droplets deeper into the thicket, tracking dogs now howling the way. For two hours, a posse of shaken investigators reluctantly poked through piles of leaves, sifted through branches, prodded every stump. Finally, at 2.30 p.m., probably just as the final bell for the day rang at Die Rough High School, an investigator spotted a lone canvas tennis shoe. Then, through a tangle of brown and green branches on a hillside a yard away, he saw a patch of blue, then a flash of white. Skin. Charlotte was beyond help. Her sweatshirt was pulled up, her sweatpants and underpants pulled down to her knees. She had a large gaping wound in her throat, separate stab wounds below that gash, multiple wounds in her back. A chevron-shaped shoe print stomped on her right cheek. The girl had been sexually assaulted. At autopsy, 22 stab wounds were counted. 16 penetrated her back, seven of which were fatal. Six were found in her neck area, any combination of which would have proved deadly. The placement of the wounds suggested she'd struggled against her captor as he repeatedly plunged the knife into her, that she'd kept her chin to her chest, fighting against the inevitable, before he managed to pull her head back and slit her throat. The force of the repeated stabbing was so tremendous one of her rib bones was cut. Police guessed the weapon was a single-blade knife, four inches in length. At least two of the fatal wounds were the depth of the blade. A head hair from her killer was on her sweatshirt. The madman's pubic hair was found on her knee. From her body, they collected DNA on the vaginal swab. Mixed in with her blood, there was the blood of an unknown male. Charlotte, in her fight to survive, had injured the animal who killed her. Racing against an impending thunderstorm, investigators worked quickly to catalog, photograph, diagram the scene. Then, after Charlotte was found, the final radio dispatch crackled on the scanner. The time is now 1,500 hours. The victim has been removed from the scene. News of the murder shattered the delusion on Gordon Street that the killing nearly a year earlier of Joan Burghardt was a one-off. While police played coy, declining to connect Charlotte's death to the slaying of Joan the August before, the residents immediately thought of that unsolved murder. Joan's family, their grief rehydrated by the news, reached out to Charlotte's heartbroken parents to offer the kind of support only those who have lived in the pit of such a nightmare can offer. In what can only be imagined as a suffocating fog of grief, Charlotte's mother invited a reporter into her home as she laid out the clothes her baby would go to heaven in. Karen Schmoyer picked out a dye-rough high school sweatshirt, Charlotte's favorite jeans, and a leather hairpiece with her name stamped on it, given to her by her daddy. In the casket with her girl would be placed a papier-mâché clown, 
a little angel from her grandmother, a small wooden cross from her church, and a black leather Bible. As this ruined mother prepared for the worst day of her life, Karen Schmoyer offered the following insight into her pain. Sometimes I talk to her. I tell her I'm sorry. I feel I let her down. I wish there was something I could have done to prevent that, that she wouldn't have been in so much pain and so tortured. Nobody deserves that. As any mother, I would have rather it had been me than her. I wonder if she was calling for me. Though police wouldn't say they thought the two killings were related, it was almost impossible for them to ignore the similarities. Joan and Charlotte were both plump. Both deaths were overkill. Both had been raped, and both lived within 100 paces of the corner of Oswego and Gordon Streets. Joan's apartment was exactly 100 steps east. Charlotte's house was 100 steps west. A killer was on the loose, and everyone knew it. The linchpin to the theory would come in traces of semen found inside his next murder victim. But first, a mother and daughter who lived just yards from the intersection connecting Joan and Charlotte's slayings would have an unexpected visitor. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step -step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. 
it caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. The young mother and her five-year-old were believed to have been spotted by the killer walking to and from the laundromat on North Maxwell Street, intersecting that cursed Gordon Street. This mother's body shape fit the profile. On June 20th, just before the sun was about to rise, the beast made his way through an open window at the family's Maxwell Street home. After creeping up the stairs and sliding into the master bedroom, he found the mother asleep in bed with her boyfriend, So the intruder sought out another victim, one readily available in the next bedroom, the sleeping five-year-old. Dressed in all black like an evil apparition, the creature snatched the girl from her bed. He covered her mouth, choked her when she tried to scream, then carried her down the stairs by her throat, bursting blood vessels in her neck. He put the innocent head first into a laundry basket of clothes, removed her underwear, and then raped and choked the tiny girl, leaving her unconscious, but not dead on the floor. Then, taking six dollars and a pair of sunglasses police would find discarded on the lawn, he slithered away. When the child eventually came to, she ran into her mother's bedroom and shook her awake. In the darkness, the groggy mother couldn't see her daughter's face. She soothed her child, telling her it was just a nightmare, but the girl persisted. A stranger had come in and hurt her. The boyfriend went downstairs and confirmed the fact. Clothes from the laundry basket were strewn about. A rocking chair near a window was askew. The contents of her purse had been dumped. Then, she turned to look at her little girl. Now, in the light, she saw her daughter's battered face. The whites of her weeping eyes bloodshot from being choked. Her quivering lip busted and bleeding. Her chest and tender neck already showing bruises. Semen would be found on the five-year-old's underpants that would later be identified as belonging to someone the mother had seen hanging out at a home seven doors from hers. It had been just 11 days since Charlotte had been killed, about 24 hours since a composite sketch was released to the public of a man seen in the area near the time and place of the teen's murder. If the killer saw the sketch, he was probably emboldened by the fact that it looked nothing like him. The FBI profile wasn't a bullseye either. Quote, This offender is likely to have an extensive criminal history going back to juvenile offenses. As a youth, his offenses would have included property crimes and assaultive behavior. As he grew older, his crimes became more serious. His criminal history may include assault, aggravated assault, sexual assault, and weapons offenses. Offender is white between the ages of 30 and 38. In reality, the now 18-year-old killer who begun his reign of terror at 17 was a football player, the life of the party, the well-liked teen who'd while away his hours with friends on the porch of his mother's immaculate home. Well, at least when he wasn't locked up in juvenile detention on burglary charges like he was during those bloodless 10 months that separated Joan and Charlotte's killings. Our killer was emboldened. 
Forget the fact that the car scene being driven by the ridiculous face in the police sketch matched Miggy's mother's car to a T, including damage from a traffic accident that left the front passenger door bowed and the back door scraped. Forget the fact that he lived dead center of the liquidation he'd embarked upon. No one expected or suspected this to be the work of a teenager. The sheer brutality convinced FBI investigators that this was the work of a man. That dead-wrong profile police were working with made Miggy's job moonlighting as a killer all that much easier. Now that he'd gotten away with an assault while others slept in the home, he was likely even more sure of his technique. Perhaps it made the assaults all the more thrilling, because he did it again. Nearly the identical thing that he'd done to that little girl, only this time as the children and grandchildren slept upstairs. He killed the mother. On July 14, 1993, the young man affectionately known by family and friends as Miggy was at it again. Foregoing the middle-class neighborhoods he lived in, he crossed the Lehigh River by a few blocks, found West Gordon Street there, and made his way through a screenless open window on a row house along a narrow road. Jessica Fortney, 47, was asleep on the couch. On the third floor, her adult daughter and son-in-law, asleep under the white noise of a fan, heard nothing. One of the four grandchildren, the oldest being eight, were upstairs as well. The matriarch's six-year-old granddaughter would later tell a judge she saw a man leave through the window. She saw that he had a gun, and she, thankfully, went back to bed. Jessica Fortney's grown daughter woke about 7 a.m. and found her mother's body half on the purple sofa, her feet on the floor, a bloody blanket over her, her head between the cushion and a pillow. The daughter called to her, pleading for her mom to wake up. Then, through sobs and gasps, she called 911 for help. My mom, she's laying on the sofa half naked. Her face is all black. She's not moving. I keep calling her. She don't, she don't hear me at all. She looks dead. There was blood on Jessica Fortney's T-shirt, on a pillow on her lap, on her lips, her left eye. Her nose was broken and her neck bore marks. Her shorts and underpants, the crotch ripped, were around her right thigh. Blood splattered the wall and lampshade nearby. An autopsy revealed she'd been beaten, then bludgeoned with an object and strangled. DNA from a vaginal swab matched DNA on the underwear of the five-year-old from the preceding attack, which matched semen found on the newspaper carrier, which matched the white stains from Joan Burghardt's shorts. The connection to all four crimes was unmistakable now. Cops just needed a suspect to compare the evidence to. Miggy, the ruthless spawn of a man whose son would grow to be even more brutal than he, would soon give them that opportunity. Because Miguel hadn't counted on a woman like Denise Sam Cowley, who turned out stronger than likely she even knew. And to get her story, all three intersections of it, we have to take a slight detour. Back in time. Denise Sam Callie and her husband John lived smack in the middle of Miggy's mayhem. They worried, as did all their neighbors, about the evil that skulked through manicured lawns at night. They were careful. They were alert. But you don't believe it can happen to you until it does. And for the Sam Callies, it did. On June 29th, with her husband out of town on business, Denise Sam Callie, 38, was alone and asleep in her bed when she woke with a start. Someone 
was in the house. It was nearly three weeks after 15-year-old Charlotte's murder and nine days after an animal brutalized a little girl on Maxwell Street. Denise must have buzzed with that feeling we all get when someone is near but you can't see them. Movement. Energy. Someone was definitely in the house. Wearing just a bra, Denise wrapped herself in the comforter and made her way into the darkened hallway. That strange, electrical, familiar energy increased near a closet door. She hid it. Who's there? The scene slipped to slow motion as Denise turned back toward the front door. She was nearly there when she heard a clatter behind her as the monster of Allentown, the natural-born killer, sprung from the closet to pounce on his prey. Shrieking, Denise threw the blanket at the dark shadow, flung the front door open, and almost escaped when Miggy reached his hand into her brown hair and tried to yank her back inside. Still, the woman twisted away. She reached the yard and was headed toward freedom when the now 18-year-old killer, his father just a twinkle in his eye, tackled her. Sprawled on the ground, he straddled Denise, punching and choking her. She bit him, a mark that would still be there when the jig was finally up. She began to lose consciousness, or cognizance, as he clamped his hand over her mouth and, near a miniature peach tree on her toddy, pretty lawn, raped her. Denise would have no recollection of that portion of the attack, a blessing one can safely assume. Through it all, her attacker uttered not a word, she told police. She remembered clearly his hazel eyes, that he wore new wranglers, and that she thought she was surely dead. I will never forget the eyes. It will be the most lasting thing I remember, the intensity, the evilness behind his eyes. As she convulsed on the ground, Miggy tried to drag her back inside, but his love of the bigger ladies made the task near impossible, so he did the next best thing. He ran into her house and out her back door. She saw him leave through the slit in her vertical blinds. Denise regained her wits, stumbled back inside, locked all the doors and windows, and called 911. Please help. I've just been beat up. Police arrived and Denise Sam Callie, still not sure she'd been raped, but not willing to let him get away with it, went to the hospital wearing just an orange blazer so as not to disturb the evidence. And when her husband John arrived, having rushed back from his business trip, he found his bride of three years in the hospital. Her head swollen, her face mottled with black and blue bruises so severe he worried she'd suffered brain damage. But Denise was alive, her brain was fine, and she still had her sense of humor about her, he later said a sign of the strength that would carry her through this, that would propel her from the shadows of her assault as a survivor. For a week after the attack, Denise stayed with her parents. When finally she returned to her house, she and her husband slept on the couch, unsure why, but feeling safer that way. They then installed central air to avoid leaving the windows open and installed an alarm system, except on the windows because the house was being remodeled. They didn't make a connection to the killing of Charlotte and Joan, but they did wonder if a burglary at their home ten days before the attack was related. In that instance, they returned home from a trip and found several guns and ammunition gone, footprints on their leather sofa, a bottle of whiskey they'd kept in a cabinet, sitting out on the counter. Then, nearly three weeks after the attack, Denise woke about 3.30 a.m. and walked into her kitchen for a glass of water. She felt uneasy and told her husband as much when she returned to the room. She fell back asleep for a short time, 
then awoke thinking she'd heard a sound. When she whispered, asking her husband if he had heard something too, he shushed her. As her eyes adjusted to the darkness, she could see John lying next to her, nearly holding his breath, a gun on his chest. Shuffling sounds were coming from the other side of the bedroom door. Then the alarm sounded, and John sprang to his feet and rushed into the front room. Denise called 911, but was disconnected, and in her panic wrongly assumed the intruder had cut the phone line. She grabbed a gun too and met her husband in the empty living room. Whoever had been there was gone now, a screen from the window sitting on the couch. Denise tried the phone again and found that it worked. When the 911 dispatcher answered, she told Denise that because of the earlier hang-up, police were already in the alley behind the house. The couple discovered a three hundred eighty caliber handgun was missing. They remembered that four nights earlier the alarm had sounded too. It was then the realization hit them that her attacker was now aiming to kill her. I know he has to kill me because I can identify him. As a new day dawned, Denise's family urged her to leave the state, dye her hair, change her name, get out before he did kill her. Police were sure the attacker would be back, so sure they assigned an officer to spend nights inside the house. Patrolman Brian Lewis, on the force just three and a half years, volunteered for the job. For a dozen nights, the windows would be left open, Denise's purse sitting out in the open on the couch, and Lewis would hunker down on a pillow near the front door from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., waiting for the man to return. The attacker would be back, police surmised. He was stalking Denise. July 31st was the patrolman's last night to stay. The operation was being suspended, having been unsuccessful at luring their catch. The officer was settled down on the floor, reading a book by flashlight, when he heard a noise on the back patio about 1.30 a.m. He readied his gun. Moments later, the screen on the front door right next to him creaked gingerly open, and the doorknob twisted a tick before meeting the lock. As Lewis breathlessly crouched behind a couch, a gloved hand appeared on the screen of the open window. Then a second gloved hand appeared on the other side of the screen, as it was softly being pushed in. The disembodied hands quietly lowered the screen to the floor, inside the house. Across the bungalow, the besieged couple slept. Miggy's head first appeared inside the window, and he glanced toward Lewis, but didn't see him. Then the killer's face was replaced by his leg and arm sliding in, as he silently shifted his whole body through. At this time, Lewis pulled the pin on his radio, a silent alarm that went to dispatch. When the officer could hear footsteps on the floor inside the house, he vaulted to his feet. Police freeze! Miggy reached for his waistband and Lewis fired a shot. The intruder ran into the kitchen. Lewis followed, a muzzle flash from the kitchen heading toward him. The officer ducked and fired again, then four more times toward the intruder. Bullets pierced cans of baked beans, corn, dish soap. His weapon went empty and Lewis retreated down the hallway to the bedroom to reload. He shouted to the Sam Callies, now awake and armed, don't shoot, as he burst through their bedroom door. The house quaked as Miggy, a caged animal, tried to batter his way out the back door, finally succeeding in busting out the glass panes and fleeing into the night. Officers were already en route, but Miggy was gone. After seeing the blood from the glass on the back door, its frame mangled from the animal's flight, an alert was put out to area hospitals, 
to be on the lookout for a man seeking treatment for cuts. And just as he fell for the trap at the house, Miggy Robinson scurried to his pleasant little house in this shell-shocked neighborhood, changed out of his bloody clothes, and walked into the emergency room at Lehigh Valley Hospital. Imagine being told to keep an eye out for a madman, and that madman sauntering in 90 minutes later with the face of a teen, grinning sheepishly about cuts he received from some innocent mishap. He was immediately arrested in the Sam Cali attacks and a total of four burglaries there. A search of his home recovered the couple's stolen gun hidden in a boot in his bedroom. Shorts and a striped rugby shirt covered in a mixture of his blood and baked beans were recovered as well. They found sneakers with soles that lined up perfectly with the impression left in the dew on Charlotte's radio and stomped on the ninth grader's face. It would be four more months, just long enough to compare his DNA to the semen found at the murder scenes, before Miggy was charged in the killings too. The trials of Miggy Robinson, there would be three, ended, at least in the first case for the attack on Denise Sam Cali, before it began. With a jury summoned for voir dire, the incessantly blinking Miggy, now wearing a knit skull cap with an eight-pointed star after his jailhouse conversion to the religion of Islam, called off the festivities and agreed to plead guilty to seven counts in exchange for the dismissal of another three dozen. The judge gave him 40 to 80 years in prison as a result. The second trial, this time for the killings of Joan Berghart and Charlotte Schmoyer and Jessica Fortney, began in October 1994. The state called 52 witnesses, including Denise Sam Cali and patrolman Brian Lewis. They also called the DNA expert, who I shit you not was named Dead Man, to explain to the jury about phenotypes and alleles, genetic markers, and buckle swabs, that the odds of finding someone else with Miggy's DNA was one in a billion. When it was the defense's turn, they offered no rebuttal testimony, no science experts to dispute the new DNA evidence, no alibi witnesses, no explanations for how Miggy's DNA was found on and in the dead women. Miggy's mother, half-sister, and older brother, who had to be brought from the jail where he was being held for a video store robbery, spent a total of 25 minutes testifying in his defense. Miggy's attorneys relied solely on his contentions during opening statements that the prosecution had no witnesses, no murder weapons, no motive, and no fingerprints. Well, except for that pesky genetic fingerprint that was changing the course of criminal investigations for the rest of eternity. Through all 12 days of the trial, the families of the victims sat together, members of a heart-rending club in which access is granted on waves of ineffable grief. Charlotte's mother told a reporter if strangers were going to hear what happened to her child, then she needed to know too, no matter how painful the truth was. It took the jury just six hours to come to a unanimous verdict of guilty. The following day, they were tasked with deciding his fate. Testimony from the pathologist would recount the victim's wounds. More brutal photographs kept back during the trial were displayed to support the element of torture prosecutors used as a rung to the death penalty. Psychologists were called, including one who said that while Miggy was competent and didn't have a mental illness that would make him legally insane, he was dependent on drugs and alcohol and diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder that when high, Miggy experienced auditory and visual hallucinations. 
Any points the defense psychologist may have scored were wiped from the slate when the prosecutor asked what one would call someone who kills with cooling off periods, only to kill again. There was only one answer, and it was uttered for the first time in this courtroom by a defense witness. Serial killer, the doctor said. The following day, jurors came back with a sentence. As Miggy sat unmoving with the same blank expression he'd worn all 14 days, the first serial killer in Allentown, PA, the first defendant to be convicted on DNA in the state's most populated city, the oddity whose brutality was unmatched in his peer group, became the youngest person in the state, sentenced to death. Three months later, he'd have another 57 years tacked on for the rape of the five-year-old. Since 1976, Pennsylvania has only executed three inmates, the last of whom was serial killer Gary Heidnick, who kidnapped, tortured, and killed six women he held captive in a pit in his Philadelphia basement. I covered him on Dark Topic in the past, but as a reminder, he dismembered one, storing foiled wrapped body pieces marked dog food in his freezer, cooked her ribs, and boiled her head in a pot, probably fed some of his other captives pieces of her in dog food sandwiches. Today, there are 150 men and women awaiting their date with the executioner. The last man put to death by electric chair in the Keystone State was in 1962, when a sexual psychopath with caveman-like tendencies named Elmo Smith had the life sapped out of him for the inhuman rape and murder of Marianne Mitchell, a 16-year-old girl in 1959. Afterward, the manor was lethal injection, a rather pleasant proposition if one has to choose. Miggy nearly escaped death row when a judge vacated the death sentences in Charlotte and Jones' killings, sending Miggy back to court to be sentenced to life. The death sentence for the Fortney slaying stands today. Over the past 27 years, Miggy Robinson has grown into a middle-aged man behind the bars of state correctional institutions in Pennsylvania. He has filed countless appeals in his case, spending hours in the law library, handwriting motions, many of which were based on the fact that his defense never explored his inexplicable loss of IQ as a child. Though none of the motions describe a trauma that would account for the loss, they all suggest as much, and have all been unsuccessful. Miggy's filed lawsuits too. In one case, he successfully sued a corrections officer who doctored the books to send him to solitary. A jury awarded the butcher of Allentown $10,000 for his unfair treatment. He even has a profile on a prison pen pal website, listing his hobbies as writing, learning, and yoga, while curiously admitting that his true first love is murder. Hello, my name is Miggy. I'm a death row prisoner. Due to my situation, many family members and friends have abandoned me. Prison, especially being on death row, is lonely and can be very difficult to deal with at times. I'm hoping to make a few friends who will correspond with me. Anyone who wishes to write... Please do not in any way hesitate. I encourage everyone to please hesitate in every way. So the clock keeps winding down as the families of the victims count the days until the moral imbecile that is now a bored and lonely Harvey Miguel Robinson dies either by nature or nurture, helped along by a cocktail of state-sanctioned poison coursing through his veins. And that'll do it 
Thank you to F.T. Norton for first-class research and writing on this episode. To be clear, as some have asked, yes, I still write on Dark Topic. I think F.T. would prefer I made that clear, especially considering the nature of this episode's intro. I'm mounting a return to relevance with consistent episodes. Again, thank you so much for your support just by listening. Please rate and review Dark Topic if you haven't. If you have, I've read it and I appreciate it. The show depends on your rating and review to be visible. Uh, So thank you for supporting in this way. And thank you to everybody over on Patreon. I can't uh, thank you enough, but I try to thank you as much as I can uh, over there. 2020 is over. But the problems stay the same. I think what the changing of the number does is provide the sense of a fresh start, which is good. It gives us each a reason to consider a change of mindset, and that's a powerful thing. So here's the 2021. What do I got here? I can't. Ding. Oh, shit. That fucking hurt. This is thick glass. I got little baby hands. I don't do real work. I got the hands of a Victorian woman. I think I just split my fucking fingernail there on this mason jar. I'm drinking water out of a spaghetti uh, container. So things are starting off fucking hot and heavy here in 2021 for me. I'm sure that'll turn into wine by February, but for the moment, I'm listening to the voice inside that I know is out for my best interest. Yeah, there is a devil inside it. He's loud and clear, but this other, this humble little voice I've been straining to hear lately becomes louder each time I take its advice. And wouldn't you know, my life begins to reflect the good in those choices. Slowly, clouds dispersing, sucked away by the retreating storm. But I still hear the rumble, and that's okay. The threat keeps me vigilant, and the failures give me something to talk about. Anyways, big love to you. It's all just a big adventure. Huddle down, get up and climb, fall off the side, recover, maybe reach the top. I don't know, get bored and jump off willingly, whatever. Just keep moving. But be sure to put your loved ones ahead of you. We tend to choose a clearer path when having to consider the well-being of those along with us on this journey. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you. I'll be back soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.